Hello, and welcome to Wait, What? A podcast for the Savage Critic website. I'm Jeff Lester, and this is the second part of a conversation that Graham McMillan and I recently had about comics. In part one, we talked about the joys of Marvel comic superhero Dazzler, and today we are going to be talking about recent Grant Morrison projects, Batman and Robin number one, and Sea Guy number three, Slaves of Mickey Eye. Thanks for listening. We're ready to talk comics, damn it. Yes, let's. Although, really, we've been talking comics the whole time. I guess I mean, we're ready to talk about comic reviews, damn it. You know what's great? What? That if this actually works and this becomes a podcast and this podcast goes up, <laughs> then this is a way for us to do reviews on Savage Critics without actually sitting down and writing them, which seems to be the problem we have with doing the reviews on a regular basis anyway. Well, exactly. Well, and this is part of the reason why, of course, everybody and their dog's doing podcasts now, of course, because, you know, sitting down and talking is easy. I'm just worried that, you know, I mean, you think fast on your feet, but I'm a little worried my reviews are going to lack a certain, um, you know, trenchant wit or even intelligence or verbs in some cases, which I hear are important. Who needs verbs? We're talking about comics. Come on. (laughs) Very nice. That should be our slogan. Okay. So uh, what do you want to start with? Oh, let's start with Batman and Robin. Yes. Okay. Great. I have to to admit, I've gone back and forth about Batman and Robin and Sea Guy this week so much. When I first read them, I was like, this is great. And then about an hour later, I was like, that's really disappointing. (laughs) <laughs> I, every time I read someone else writing about it, my opinion changes. Like, yeah. um, not so much Batman, but definitely Sea Guy. I feel like I am a stupid because Douglas Walk really likes it. Yes, Does that makes sense. Like, I honestly, I'm like, I didn't like it so much. Douglas mm-hmm. loves it, therefore I am at fault because Douglas is a very smart man. No, exactly, exactly. When when Douglas and Jog like something, and Jog goes on to to lay down like exactly why it is good. Mm-hmm. Exactly, I'm like, wow. Well, but you know, I think that uh, I don't know about you, but I kind of figure like, well, maybe that's just my role. I'm like, I get to be the ignorant asshole of the bunch. That's kind of a nice little, you know, kind of like Ben Grimm without the charm or something. We you can't know, supposed can... to be Ben Grimm. There can only be one thing. At best, I could be Sharon Ventura. Yeah. Okay. Well, did Graham, I, her, I tell you what. Did I get her name right? If I really remembered the name of she thing without having to look it up, I can't tell if that's a victory or a loss. That is both, my friend. And I'm looking <laughs> it up now. Um, Sharon Ventura. Very oh, nice. Point to me. Point <laughs> to my sad, pathetic nature. <laughs> Well, and because you win, uh, you get to be Ben Grimm, and I will be Sharon Ventura. I will be the female version of the thing. Um, okay, so but, Batman and Robin, did you like it? Uh, that is a really good question. I put it down. Well, this, I, you know, I complained about it in email. I kind of like I liked what I liked, but it was kind of over. You know, I mean, it was just, it was like over really quick. And all the things, like, I like the full page preview. I like the opening chase scene. I thought Mr. Toad slash Toad is, was great. But it just kind of, um, I think there were, there were just points where pacing wise, I was like, this is kind of phoned in. Like, there's no reason why this has to run 
at four panels or five panels. I mean, you know, I it, I hate to say stuff like that because it makes me sound like I'm really cheap or something, you know, which who knows, maybe that's the problem. But I just felt like, I feel like Morrison does this, is currently a big fan of doing like a very streamlined minimalism where everything is sort of... Uh, packed in and you can sort of expand it out as you think about it if you know the references or you get to the point that they're going at uh where he's getting at and then it's like oh wow then it feels like this you know it's like everyone's talking about it like it's this huge feast and i felt like i had like batman and robin was a a pretty decent small order french fries you know i think batman and robin is a really great first issue but Hmm. mostly because of frank whiteley Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think if you had an, any other artist drawing this, exactly the same story, right. it would not be even half as good. And I think oh, yeah. part of that is quietly not only is a wonderful draftsman, but mm-hmm. in doing that, the way he stages the characters fills in the blanks for what Morrison isn't writing. Morrison, especially recently, has written superhero stories as almost tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. The, the dialogue is very, um, I don't know, insincere. Mm-hmm. People don't talk the way that normal people talk or even comic book characters talk. They talk in quotes or they talk in statements mm-hmm. that aren't a conversational at all. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got the, the policeman on top of uh, the police building and they're all saying things like Hope Springs Eternal and Batman's never coming back and it's not a conversation. They're there sort of signposting the story. You know, they're there to say, we're the policemen who don't believe that Batman is here. Right. And it only works because you have quietly giving the characters a humanity that Morrison isn't giving them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would buy that. I, I think that's absolutely a great point. And, and so consequently, I mean, it, it prevents it from being like a bad small order of French fries for me. It's, it's an absolutely great order, but it's, <laughs> but very, but I mean, it's very small and it's also, it's kind of French fry. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's just sort of me where I'm very, I, I, I think I actually have no problem with that because I think Morrison's previous Batman run has trained me for that. I think I now expect Grant Morrison to write Batman stories that will seem very inconsequential until they're over. Then I will sit down and read them all at once and be like, look, he was really smart. Uh, that, the previous Batman run really did that. I almost tuned out entirely just before R.I.P. Because I thought, you know, he's filling time. But then when R.I.P. finished, I went back and read the whole thing in one. And he's not. He's laying lots of groundwork and clues and signposts that you don't really see until the end. Again, we get back to sort of, you know, the idea of the last minute reveal. But you've got to put an awful lot of trust in Morrison ahead of time to think that he's doing that as opposed to just laying, you know, he could just be calling it in and I'm hoping that he is laying all his groundwork that he isn't really doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I sort of feel pretty confident in a way. Um, I think at the end of the day, Batman RIP had a lot of stuff that I, it could just well be the execution where all the stuff is really cool in the thinking about it and it's really cool in the contemplation of it, but I'm not really enjoying the reading of it. Batman and Robin was great because Frank Whiteley's art is so nice. I was like, okay, I'm enjoying this, but it also had a thing of, you know, I think I I bitched the traditional idea of like 
sort of any Batman and Robin, any sort of issue of Batman, usually, if you're going by the formula, has, you know, the opening fight, the Batcave scene, the police scene, the victim scene, the villain scene, and then, you know, at but least is, is the that setup not for the intentional? next fight. Like, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that, because I like the idea that he is writing uh, a cliched superhero comic. I'm Me- fine with him sticking entirely to the formula. Oh, I am too. I just think that there's something where he doesn't even get all the way through it. You know, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, um, uh, you know, it's like it's like when you give a speech and you run out of time and then you cram everything into the last 10 seconds. You know, I felt like he was doing a great job with it. And then it was suddenly like, oh, oh, I've only got two pages left. OK, hey, look at this and this, you know, and um Maybe. Yeah, the, the pacing is, is very odd. I'm actually leaping through it while we talk. The pacing is very odd, especially in about halfway through the issue. Mm-hmm. He suddenly mm-hmm. is just, it becomes much choppier. Yeah, and and that's my problem, is it, it works great when you've got, you know, all these big spreads and, and all these panels are, you know, the length of the page to give them a, a real, you know, again, that it's that old widescreen trick. Um but then when the story changes up and it's sort of a quiet, it's supposed to be a quieter moment, all of a sudden things don't really gel. Like it, 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 they, it all seems kind of draggy. Like I feel like there's some very clever tricks to cover, cover up the fact. And, and it's, I'm sure it's sort of the pace that they are trying to have, but I, I don't know. I, I think that, um, I think it just sort of played havoc with the way with the way that I read the issue. So that literally, when I get to the end, um, instead of it being the traditional sense of a cliffhanger, I sort of feel like I just sort of ran off the edge of a cliff. You know, it's very yeah. like wily coyote. It, it, thing. The, the story does just kind of stop, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's trying he's trying to provide the traditional cliffhanger of here's the bad guy, he is bad. Yeah, but the way it happens, you don't really. I don't know. It, it it feels sort of cheap because it's those last three pages that, mm-hmm. you know, he's like, and here's another bad guy mm-hmm. out of nowhere. You know, you're not really getting any of the build up. He could have placed that build up before when he was when Toad was talking or, or any of that. Mm-hmm. And there's none of it. It's just like out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it feels mm-hmm. as if he's just like, oh, this is the point where I'm supposed to do a cliffhanger. Right. Here you go. Right. And and to me also there's something very strange in that that final that final scene has a blackout in it too, you know, where it's like uh they answer the door, there's Professor Pig's dolls or whatever, and then there's a blackout and then he you know the the character comes back um regains consciousness and he's tied to a table. And so there's sort of a very strange kind of um uh, whenever you do a blackout, like within a scene, and then you come back in a scene, particularly in comics, it's very odd. Like he chose, obviously, he deliberately chose to do that. But you know, both comics and movies have a tendency to like, if you want a, a, a great way to show the passage of time, is you just cut to another scene, cut to another character, and then cut back. Mm-hmm. You know, but by by deciding to have like, OK, he's blacking out on one page and then on the very next page, he's back. And then you've got the whole sequence of, ooh, this is going to be really creepy and scary. And then it cuts out, um, you know, maybe he's trying to create something that's almost like the way the uh, 
the old Batman TV shows episodes used to end where it's kind of like, you know, where the announcer comes in and is like, stay tuned. But it felt very, it felt very strange. I think it would have worked for me if there weren't other parts of the book that ended, had ended up feeling so draggy to me. Mm-hmm. I think you know? Blackout worked for me. Yeah. I, I like the the idea that, to my mind, they blacked out and you don't entirely know what's going on. And then when you wake up, it's something horrific. The mm-hmm. Where the blackout didn't work for me was actually in the coloring. Mm. Because coloring for the blackout is really weird. It's concentric circles. And mm-hmm. all the way through it, the coloring, which um, you and I and David Brothers have talked about in email, which I generally like. I like that there's an incredible overuse of Photoshop filters in there, mm-hmm. especially in the skies. Like, they are incredibly unnatural. And I don't know... I mean, part of me honestly thinks either it's a stylistic choice that I personally like or it's a mistake because there's some mm-hmm. really weird gradients in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at that point, it just doesn't work. I was kind of like, are we meant to think there's a blackout or is there something in the, the concentric circles? Uh, like, I was confused by that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's, uh, there's something weirdly artificial in all of the coloring, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which really comes out in the skies, which I like. It's because it's some sort of hyper-reality in a way. Mm-hmm. But there's there's an artificiality which I think really really works, especially playing off Quietly's art, which is incredibly true to life in a way. Right. I mean the the scene with uh, Dick and Alfred in the Batcave, the rendering on the faces is just beautiful. Yeah. And it makes them look like people, mm-hmm. in a, in a way that they normally don't. Yeah. So you've got the the artificiality of the coloring playing off against the realism in the rendering, which I think is really, really nice and really, really successful. But mm-hmm. at, at the end, with the blackout, it's just odd. And mm-hmm. it, it sort of pulled me out. I don't know whether I am supposed to see something in those three circles or not. Mm. I like the idea of the blackout. I just don't know if it's really a blackout. I see. Well, and maybe that's meant to be the case to keep you guessing. I mean, again, that's the sort of thing of like, <sighs> is that is that is that for this stuff to work? You have to pretty much suspend all your all your disbelief one hundred percent. And I guess that's again maybe that's only fair. Maybe that's something that we should do for every writer. Or if there's anyone who has earned that, it's Morrison. But a lot of times I'm kind of like, nah, you know, sort of. There's he's kind of got a you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. And so, like, for the people who are on the bus, you know, Final Crisis is terrific. And for those of us who are off the bus, it's either there's some amazing stuff there and it's right next to stuff that doesn't work at all, or, of course, people who just none of it really worked. But Mm. um, I'm sort of vexed that I end up being, um, you know, the guy who's not on the bus, I guess, in part. You want to be on the bus, don't you? I do. I do. I absolutely do. It's like I read Douglas and and Jog and I'm like, oh, man, why aren't why aren't I on this wonderful trip? Because I'm not. I'm still standing out there in the rain, you know, holding my bag, trying to figure out why the hell I can't get on, you know? See, what's fascinating about that is I I pretty much consider myself on the bus. Like, there's things I'm not completely convinced by in Batman and Robin and Sea Guy. But mm-hmm. overall, I would say I enjoyed them. Same with Final Crisis, although I don't think Final Crisis holds up as well when you go back and reread it. I think Final Crisis is very much like a, a song 
and the first time you hear it you're completely won over and you're like oh my god that's the greatest song in the world and then you listen to it a few times and you're like oh, wait that's you know not so great um morrison with the superhero stuff always seems to work on more on an emotional level than an intellectual one mm-hmm. but i honestly think that the people who fall head over heels in love with morrison's work and get the most out of it are smarter than me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I don't know if that's because i'm misreading the work or i'm not mm-hmm. smart enough mm-hmm. but I, I there's always the element of because jog loves it because douglas loves it because they can back that up that i'm like i'm misreading the work yeah, maybe. Uh, and this is probably a pretty good, uh, pretty good segue then into uh, Sea Guy, the last issue of uh, Sea Guy: Slaves of Mickey Eye. Um, because w- you, were you disappointed by that as as well? I was, and then I reread all of the Sea Guys to date, mm-hmm. and then I found it more satisfying. But at the same time, I think all of it is him trying to do too much. He's being mm-hmm. over-ambitious. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let me ask you then, because the reason why I think the third... I, I mean, I thought, the, I thought the second issue of Slaves of Mickey Eye were absolutely... was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the third issue I, I thought was kind of disappointing. Um, do you think that that... Um, do you... Th- I think if he'd had another issue for the third issue, it all would have worked better. He does a pretty significant jump between the second issue and the third issue because right. he has so much he is trying to do in the third issue. But I think mm-hmm. it, I think it suffers as a result. I would have liked to have seen more what happens between issues two and three because the I was following Sea Guy's journey, if you will, yes. in issue two. And then he shows up and he's like, I have this plan. And even though he's like, I don't know if I can do it. He has this plan and he seems to have gotten all these people to work with him. And we didn't see it. And I feel cheated. Yeah. That is, I think my biggest problem with the third, with the third issue is that, um, and also this is something where I, I felt like I should go back and read the first miniseries. Um, but I was like, you know, even even how it how it ends where it's kind of like he's fighting Chibeard for the right to like the first volume of Sea Guy and even the second volume, it's not so much it's not really about that. You know what I mean? Like I feel like it's one of those deals where Grant was kind of maybe he was going like, Okay, thematically this is what's supposed to be the point of Sea Guy. But but like you said, following Sea Guy the character, like he's not that that whole that whole sword fight thing I kind of thought was like bullshit. It sort of struck me as an incredibly tacked on kind of like, well, here's closure, and it's sort of a uh, you know. Well, see, I, I didn't even see it as closure. I after having read the earlier issues, I think it follows insofar as you know, way back in the first issue of the first series, mm-hmm. he's he's in love with Shebeard. Mm-hmm. What I find the problem I had with it, or two of the problems I had with it, first of all. When did he get so good as a sword fighter? Like all, all the way along, you know, if she's meant to be, no one has ever bested her in combat. She's mm-hmm. got to be pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. He's never used swords before, and mm-hmm. even if I'm willing to grant, no pun intended, the the bullfighting sequence in the second issue, right? 
how is he able to hold his own with with her for however long it is, which is at least hours? Yeah, if not three days or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And secondly, it feels more like he's tacked it on because that's where he needs the character to be in order for the third series to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I would that... be much happier if it ended when he turned down the butterfly's offer. Because right. all of the second series to me is about the disillusionment of his childhood dreams. And so mm-hmm. if you end it with, he has defeated who he thought was his enemy, but nothing has changed. He is offered the adult world, but turns it down because he doesn't know if that's what he wants. That's a mm-hmm. much more satisfying end than, and then he gets the girl. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I kind of felt like the, the ending was kind of like, okay, and this is where we can have an end. And I, I sort of felt that that was... Um, you know, for me, like, despite the, despite, you know, his fondness for Shebeard way back when, which, of course, my, my shitty memory should be able to recall, but, but doesn't, um, you know, it's really throughout, it's Sea Guy sort of sense of, of yearning or longing, whether it's for adventure or to fit in or both, um, the, the part in him that's kind of always, you know, looking uh it, it is the part to me that that really makes it um is the continuity of the character from issue to issue to issue so when he shows up and suddenly he's like toughened up he's got skills he's learned all this stuff and then the big thing is like oh and what i really want to do is like uh you know make out with shebeard it just really felt completely um it kind of, it felt very artificial to me and what i think is interesting Yes. No, no, you go. I, I was going to say, what I find interesting is thematically, the more that I've thought about it, there's a lot in the, the second miniseries that has to do with, um, I don't want to necessarily say the difference between boys and girls, but obviously, you know, the whole thing of the, the feminizing the bull in the second issue and then Shebeard getting shorn in the third, there's... Um, you know, I got really annoyed. I think when um, when uh, Matt Fraction compared uh, Batman R.I.P. to like Matthew Barney's uh, Crime Master Cycle, I thought that that was kind of really off mark. But I really can actually see in this second series um, that Barney's obsession of uh, Literally, uh, uh, an understanding of, of masculine development, I guess, in a very strange, surreal, sideways kind of way, really happens in this second miniseries. Like, but in order to kind of make that point happen, Morrison has to hammer characters uh, into into places, particularly Sea Guy, into a place in a very quick and, and sort of. Um, unnecessary way and then again Shebeard which is pretty much about as much of a cipher as one can imagine for me at least in the second in the second miniseries I'm like why do I care and when you know obviously she's been debearded and she's been brainwashed but I'm kind of like but who is this character anyway apart from kind of a signifier and kind of a a, you know, a goof on the Red Sonia style warrior woman cliche, you know? But, what I, mean? but I think that's the point. 
And I, it's interesting because we're talking and I'm leafing through the issue in front of me, and I just realised I think the end may be supposed to feel artificial. Uh huh. Because oh, I see. Because the last thing the butterfly says is, "What must we do to make you happy?" And then immediately mm-hmm. then goes to the super team getting back together, Chubby telling him he's a hero, and him getting the girl. Uh, I see. So, so, so in other words... That it's all supposed to feel artificial. Like, there is supposed to be uh, a jerk. There's supposed to be something where you're supposed to feel that it is not convincing. Because right. it's not meant to be convincing. Right. So, in other words, it's just like a more complicated version of when you know, three guy, C guy and P guy show up at the end of issue. You know, that, that there's a bit of a razzmatazz to kind of fool C guy into thinking that he's gotten what he's wanted finally. Yeah. But again, and this is just the is, more sophisticated is this me giving Morrison more credit than he deserves? Am I reading something into the story that's not there? Well, I, and this is the problem. I would say that you're not giving him more credit. That's probably is supposed to be the reading. If it wasn't for the fact that he kind of bones us on Sea Guy's character development between issues two and three. And so there's kind of that kind of like, well, he dropped the ball there a little bit. Why do we think that he's not dropping the ball here? You know what I mean? Like Morrison is to me, he's never, he's really, there's a lot about him that's great, but he's never quite as good as he insists that he is, I think, or that he requires that the that the that it requ- the story requires us to believe him to be in order to suspend the disbelief to make everything come together, you know. Or maybe that's me being, you know, a caveman comic book critic, and you're just you know, a hater, Lester. Exactly, I'm a I'm a hater because you know because I don't have the extra, you know. Um, brain capacity that the jog and douglas have um what's funny because... is we keep talking about this <laughs> there's something wrong with jog and douglas like we're being smarter than us well <laughs> no, like, no 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 I... I feel like we're gonna be like and then those clever bastards did this fuck them <laughs> fuck all of them i feel bad because honestly i i like reading their criticism because generally it makes me smarter and it makes me go back and read what they're writing about it no, I agree. And I think that's what we're trying to say. I mean, I'm certainly trying to give def- deference and have it be like, hey, you know what? It could just be that I'm not uh, smart enough or in tune enough with the work to really appreciate it. Um, and they are. Um, but, you know, what's interesting was I didn't I don't think um, I don't think when I read their pieces, I really felt like they I was much more educated about, at least in the case of Sea Guy. Um, than I was previously. Oh, like, I do think they they were like, oh, this was great. And, like, Douglas said stuff like, oh, every, you know, there was something on every page that made me laugh. And, and Jog was like, yeah, if you remember, you know, Grant Morrison's new X-Men, then you'll find that last image on the last page. Well, see, that, real strong... that's the part that actually, that particular thing made me go back and revisit it. Because mm-hmm. I was like, I had not been reading this with an eye to new X-Men at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm not I'm not entirely sure that holds together entirely, but it it does become a more interesting book when you start to think about what context Morrison was, you know, what mindset he was in when he was writing it, or at least the first series. I'd like to think he's over at New X Men by now. Yeah, uh, 
well, no, I mean certainly the the power of the franchise, the 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 soul crushing power of the franchise, in which all the characters have to end up in the exact same place that they started, you know, is seemed to me definitely the 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 message that I took away from the first Sea Guy miniseries, mm-hmm. and I can see that that was something that he learned from, you know, that that was certainly his complaint with New X Men, I guess, but uh, but I just I don't know I. I just kind of thought that it was, a, you know, switching it to Mickey Eye, it just sort of seemed like it was applicable to any of these corporate brands. It's applicable to Disney, it's applicable to DC, it's applicable to Marvel. But isn't, isn't that the point? Right, well, that that's my thing. So for him to, like, for so for people to go, well, yeah, so this X here in the front, I'm like, that doesn't, that somehow makes it, somehow diminishes it if I'm supposed to think that this is some sort of meta commentary that ties into new X-Men. I mean, it, it's just as applicable to, you know, GI Joe or some stupid toy from the seventies as it, as it is new X-Men. But if you put something really specific in there where I'm supposed to be like, okay, wait, is this commentary on Marvel boy and new X-Men and all this stuff? You know, it's a little too, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe I miss the other 300 other symbols that are very specifically tying, you know, like I sort of assumed that that Mickey Eye is both Disney and also the DC, you know, the DC Bullet or Eye or something like that. But well, the one thing I noticed is when Sea Dog's getting married, he's essentially got the Thundercats logo on his chest. Was it Thundercats? I thought it was Blackhawk. I oh, thought maybe that both. Was... I definitely saw it and thought Thundercats. Oh, that's really funny because I, you know, I saw it and of course thought Blackhawk, which I thought was pretty clever. And like you said, looking at it now, I think it is designed to be both. So. But, I mean, there's lots of imagery in there. And, you know, to completely jump ship for a minute, Cameron Stewart's art all through the series, I think, has been amazing. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, as someone who loved the first series and has loved Cameron's art for a long time, the difference mm-hmm. between the first and second series is stunning. If you go back and compare his art from the first series to the second series, he's just grown so much more confident and so much more bold, and it's just... He's one of my favorite artists working right now, and yeah. I, I, I'm always kind of stunned that he's not bigger than he is. But then maybe he doesn't want to be big. Maybe he he stays away from the the big name projects. But you know, I think Sea Guy just shows him to be one of the best artists in DC these days. Oh, I agree. I absolutely agree. And I, you know, and of course, like you said, the same thing's very true of, of Quietly as well. He's he's an extraordinary artist that brings so much to the title. And the sad um, thing is, I feel both of them, despite being amazing artists, kind of get overlooked because everyone is too busy to deconstruct the story. Yeah, I think Maybe that's Maybe not Quietly, but, but Cameron definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I think that that's unfortunately kind of the problem as people point out, and I know it's my big uh, failing, one of them as, as a comic book critic uh, reviewer type guy is I definitely tend to hone in on the writing. And it's very rare that I make the time to, to say this was nice or this was good, you know, unless in the case of something like some of Tony Daniels storytelling where it completely falls apart, you know, it's really hard to write about art though. Yeah, I mean, it really, really is because either you're sort of limited to. For one thing, it's very subjective. I think even more so than story. I think mm-hmm. in story you can at least always prove when something doesn't work. Whereas mm-hmm. in art, it's not so much unless it's yeah 
Um, also, really hard to write about art without sounding like a dick. It's really hard <laughs> to, to. It is. Hi, I. You know what? That just cut out on me there for a second. Um, um, yep. Let's see how long we've been on here. I'm sure it's past the dreaded. It's yeah, thirty. Minutes. Thirty. So should we try again? Should I? Yeah. Why don't. Uh, yeah. Why don't you call me, call me back? Okay. No, no, no. You give me a call. Okay.